Hello, everybody, and welcome to A Biblical Frame, where we are discussing current events from a biblical theological perspective. I'm sitting down with a group of my friends here, and uh, instead of telling you who they are, I'm going to invite them to introduce themselves briefly. Hello, I'm Jan Zimmerman, Professor of Theology at Regent College in Vancouver. Hello, my name is Ivan De Silva, and I teach Biblical Studies at Trinity Western University and Pacific Life Bible College. Hello, I'm Hans Burzma. I teach theology at Neshota House Theological Seminary in Wisconsin. And I'm Douglas Farrow. I teach theology and ethics at McGill University in Montreal. Thank you uh, so much, all of you, for being with us today. And my name is Ed Gerber, and I'm lead pastor at Willoughby Christian Reformed Church. Today we're going to talk about freedom. Last week, or two weeks ago, we released our first podcast, and we talked about fear from a biblical theological perspective. There is an awful lot of fear in the air today. Some have said that we are in the midst of a fear pandemic. It is equally important, I think, though, to talk about the concept of freedom and to uh, do a deep dive in terms of what Scripture says about freedom and to look at uh, today, you know, we have, or yesterday, there was a trucker's convoy here in BC. We've seen images, particularly if we're on Twitter or Instagram or other online devices of what's going on in Ottawa and what's going on in Alberta. Um, Some of us are deeply inspired by what's going on, and others of us are deeply in horror about what's going on. I had a conversation uh, last week with uh, somebody I know, and I said, what do you think about the trucker's convoy? And they said, I don't like it at all. And they felt quite a bit of contempt for what's going on there. So we have polarized opinions on what's going on, but I think we want to sail a little bit above that, although I want to you know, dig into that as well. But to talk about freedom, you don't think about oxygen until you begin climbing a very high mountain uh, because you take it for granted. And when you start to lose your oxygen or feel that you're losing your oxygen, then you realize how important it is. And I think that we are in a situation in uh, the Western world right now where the same is true of the topic of freedom. So this is a very important topic And I'd like to see what the Lord says about this and see what kind of instruction we get from Scripture. So, Jens, if you'd kick us off with uh, a little meditation that you have prepared, that would be wonderful. Gladly do. So I'm not sure what the Lord says about it, but I know, I think, what theology says about it. (laughs) Okay. So um, I want to talk about the biblical notion of freedom in light of uh, the so-called pandemic and the stuff that's going on. Um, And my basic point is that I think the biblical notion of freedom uh, needs to be tied to love, and it needs to be tied to responsibility, and it needs to be tied to truth. So those that's my main point, and I'll, I'll flesh this out. So if we look at the creation account, according to the Bible, freedom is a defining characteristic of human beings as made in God's image. We can see this clearly in the Genesis account. God creates the earth, water, plants, and living <coughs> beings by command. Let it be. But none of these things reflect the Creator's image because they don't possess freedom. Rocks, plants, animals can talk back to God. Uh, Well, maybe in Narnia, but not in the Genesis account. So only a being that can rise above instinct, biological function, and material necessity can actually reflect God back to him. And so God decides to create the human being in his own likeness, not by command, interestingly, in the account, but 
by shaping the first human being with his own hands in this kind of relational, special care way, breathing his own spirit into the first human being. And so he's made in, the, in God's image a being marked by freedom of response to the creator and the freedom of personal choice. Now, as we know, in our culture, the popular notion of freedom only focuses really on the second part of, of personal choice. Freedom from coercion and influence, that's how people look at freedom. To be free means to be an entirely unimpeded, uninfluential, uninfluenced individual who then chooses to engage the world on his or her own terms. The Bible tells us, though, that freedom is not merely freedom from some coercion, but more fundamentally it's a freedom for others. In the Bible, freedom is first of all a relation. And so that's what I mean by Freedom is tied immediately to responsibility, to a response, usually to response to another. We're free to be in relation for, with others. We're free for communing with others. For example, we're created to be in relation with God, and God created humanity first as man and woman, who are again free for one another, to be in relation with one another. In fact, it is only within relation that we are truly free, which is what the popular cultural individualistic sense of freedom doesn't grasp. Freedom only works when it is freedom for something. Freedom for its own sake usually leads to anarchy and to chaos. Now, the key word for defining freedom as relation, as responsibility, is love. That's my uh, third one. Love sets others free. In fact, so love and freedom are connected that way. In fact, true love wants the other wants the other to be free. Love recognizes another's right to be another. Love does not want to shape another in its own image, but acknowledges another's freedom to be different. That's what's what makes marriage so difficult. In this way, love grants another person dignity. Now, in giving human beings freedom, God grants difference and opposition the risk of opposition. We're free to turn against God. That is the necessary shadow side of freedom. And only when we are free from any inner necessity or external coercion can we actually truly love others in this freedom. Love cannot be coerced. Love is given and received in freedom. You can't force love and you can't be forced to love. Whenever that happens, the true image of God in us is negated. In the Bible, for good reason then, God's spirit of love is contrasted with the spirit of fear, the topic that we had last last session. Fear inevitably kills love, and therefore fear kills freedom. For example, when we fear for our lives, we turn others into obstacles to our safety. We've seen that plenty in the pandemic. Fear makes us hate others, especially those who seem unafraid. Fear always narrows our vision, too, and fear makes us do do cowardly, stupid things. Finally, fear robs us of the ability to take risks without which freedom, again, is impossible. Freedom means to take risks. So as we can see, the biblical notion of freedom is tied to responsibility and to love. The Apostle Paul sums up the inseparability of freedom and responsibility in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 when he acknowledges the importance of freedom, but he also says, take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Now this caution 
has been much leveraged in the churches during the pandemic. For example, even though many Christians know that masks are ineffective for stopping the spread of SARS-CoV-2, churches still encourage to wear masks for the sake of those who do believe in the protection of them and feel safer when others wear them. Now, for one thing, I think this reading is a misapplication of what Paul's argument actually is, because it's not about placating the fearful, but about endangering the fragile conscience and brittle faith of fellow believers. It's about falling away from God, not about you know, the fear or not for your safety. Now, encouraging mask wearing, though, in the churches exposes for me a broader issue, and this is my last point here, about the biblical notion of freedom, namely that freedom has to be tied to truth. We've seen it has to be tied to love, responsibility, service to others. Christ, of course, is the archetype of this loving, responsible freedom because here in Christ, he who is no subject to anybody freely gave his life and service to others. Indeed, it is Christ who shows us that true freedom is not only tied to responsibility but also to truth. So the very Christ that is this self-sacrificial being shows us how important truth is in connection to freedom. Christ tells us that he is the truth and that following him will make us truly free. We know this from the Gospels. And this is perhaps the greatest question for us as Christians in this current so-called pandemic situation. How does the church follow Christ faithfully so that we balance freedom, responsibility with truth? Now, my favorite theologian, the pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer thought very hard about this very question. For Bonhoeffer, Christ was the true center of everything good in creation. I quote Bonhoeffer here. Christ is the center and power of the Bible, of the church, of theology, but also of humanity, of reason, justice, and culture. So Christ is not only the true center of the church, but also the true foundation of what is true, humane, rational, beautiful, just, and good in society as a whole. For this reason, living in the truth of Christ includes Christians' responsibility for society as a whole. So to follow Christ in truth means to ask whether our actions respond to the truth of our entire historical, social, and political reality. Therefore, when churches make decisions, they have to keep in mind how their actions respond to society as a whole. So to get our discussion going here, I will end by applying this biblical notion of freedom to the corona measures. Does the church's response to the so-called pandemic balance freedom, responsibility, and truth? Many are beginning to realize today that SARS-CoV-2 never was, and certainly is not now, the the plague-like killer virus that media politicians and health officials have led us to believe it is. Moreover, none of the containment measures like lockdowns, masking, or quarantining healthy people are evidence-based. There is no empirical evidence for their effectiveness Everyone can access the many studies that show that neither lockdowns nor masking can prevent viral spread. Aside from their psychologically crippling effect on children, the masks are a powerful symbol of fear, obedience, and crowd control. Moreover, lockdowns had a deadly effect on the poor and working-class people. 
Does not God ask us to defend the least of these? Now, when churches obediently and unthinkingly follow government mandates, they also implicitly endorse the false pandemic narrative and the wrongful sufferings the politically imposed measures have caused. So, to be concrete, putting a mask on in worship, complying with mandates for the sake of keeping churches open, and even excluding the unvaccinated, means closing our eyes to the ongoing totalitarian encroachment on the freedoms and rights of citizens by governments worldwide. We can't just focus on the church. We have to focus on the whole picture. When you look at this the way Bonifer did, with Christ as truth, as the center of reality, that putting on a mask is actually the very opposite of neighborly love. It is, in fact, an acquiescence in, in a lie. This is what happens when love becomes separated from truth. We may think that in following pandemic rules, we love our neighbor and we preserve at least the freedom of gathering for worship. In effect, however, we have already given up freedom because our choice is no longer linked to truth. Are we surprised that division and hatred have seeped into our churches over the mandates? Calling compliance an act of love that is bereft of truth leads to division. True Christian discipleship requires us than to hold together freedom, love, and truth. And only when we do that can we follow Christ freely and responsibly. So that is my sort of setting up of the context. You can you know, agree, disagree, or, or work with that. Wonderful. That's a broad umbrella to uh, get started under. Ivan was going to pick up on this initially, and then we'll open it up for uh, general discussion. Yeah, so uh, many things <coughs> that you said there, Jens, <coughs> that were so absolutely stirring to my heart. Thank you for that. And being so bold as to state that, <coughs> that's not something you would hear uh, very often, especially not in churches, unfortunately, uh, or many churches. Um, talking about freedom connect, uh, being connected to love, it's very interesting. There is a story in the Gospels, um, yeah, I, I know it from Matthew 19, that displays um, a very powerful image to me about the way God uh, respects our freedom. And that is the story of the rich young ruler who came to Christ, uh, Jesus, and uh, asked him, you know, what should I do to be saved? And Jesus told him, well, you know the law, uh, do it. And he said, well, I've kept all those laws. And then uh, Jesus said to him, well, one thing you lack, go sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. And at that, it says, the the guy's face fell and um, he turned around and walked away. And the amazing thing is, it says, the gospel writers say that Jesus loved him, but he let him go. That's incredible to me. He allowed the rich young ruler to make his own decision on that, and to turn his back on Jesus and walk away. Now, that is freedom. That's the freedom of love. Um, he didn't for- Jesus didn't force him but, um, uh, to, to somehow you know, follow along. But neither, I, I, I'm glad to say, did Jesus reduce the requirements and say, okay, well, you know what? If, if giving everything is too difficult, why don't we start with 10%? No. He laid out the conditions and let the person make the decision. Now, there are some religions that we know of that wouldn't give people that choice. That if you turn your back on them, 
then it's either death or slavery for you. But the God of the Bible gives us that freedom. And connecting to that, I wonder though, if many Christians uh, view freedom wrongly. What I mean by that is, uh, as as you indicated, freedom is a tool by which we serve God and love our neighbor. But uh, we, we dare not make it our master, uh, because freedom can become a master. And, um, and that is, I think, part of what Paul is saying when you quoted him in 1 Corinthians 8, that um, Paul is saying, basically, I have freedom, but I will not be mastered by my freedom. Because freedom is a great servant, but it's a terrible master. And how do you know when you're being mastered by freedom? You know you're being mastered by freedom when you have to do things, especially to prove how free you are. The moment you have to prove how free you are, you have stopped being free. And so, um, <clears throat> continuing on with first, the First Corinthians 8 passage, when you turn the page to First Corinthians 9, <clears throat> excuse me, you have an astounding statement by Paul, <clears throat> almost an oxymoron. And that is, he says, I am free of all humans but I have made myself a slave to all humans. In other words, his freedom is what is required to serve others. I am free, therefore I can serve others. Because you cannot truly give yourself to another if you do not really have freedom. It's only out of that sense of complete freedom yourself that then you can willingly and wholly give yourself to the service of other people. So I agree with everything you said, that it must be connected to love, that it must be connected to truth, and we are seeing a very sad uh, decline from that in the church where people, I don't think they understand the freedom, they're fighting for the wrong type of freedom, and uh, not realizing the true nature of freedom and its, its unbelievable gift to us, and why God has given us freedom it is so that we can serve him. It's interesting that um, how, the, how, how this is connected, how the exodus is connected to the giving of the law. The people are brought out of slavery from Egypt, and then they are given the ethical and moral, um, uh, I guess, ethical and moral conditions by which they serve God and <coughs> humans. But you need to be brought out of slavery in mm-hmm. order for you to be able to exercise mm-hmm. um, love towards God and your fellow human beings. I'll stop with that, uh, but I will later pick it up on the more practical aspects of freedom, like freedom of religion, freedom of speech, and so on. We'll get into that a bit later, but I think I'll just leave it at that for now. Sounds great. Feel free to pick up on some of the things that have been said here. Um, Yeah, if I can just pick up on something that Jens said. Um, Jens died, freedom with with, uh, responsibility, with truth uh, and with love, and uh, all of those have to do, I think, with the character of God. So, so freedom has to do with, with God's character. And Jens began with, with, in his discussion by talking about how we're made in the image of God. So when we act in those ways, we're reflecting God's very own character. God is free, and God freely gives of himself, of course, most manifestly in the incarnation of his Son. That's where God gives himself in responsibility, uh, in, in love, and in, and in truth. So if we want to know what freedom is, we need to look at, well, who is God, and how does God give himself? How does, give God, how does God give his goodness? Um, well, he does it in Jesus Christ, in his love. So when we're truly free, um, we're acting truthfully, 
we're acting responsibly, we're acting lovingly. That is to say, we give ourselves to the point of death uh, to, to, to others around us. Um, and, and that freedom uh, is something that we should wish for others. And when we impinge upon, upon freedom so as to control other people, um, we're, we're, we're obscuring the very character of God, I think. So true freedom is to live out our vocation faithfully as image bearers of God. Right. It's a good way of putting it. I, I would even, I would extend that. So um, the image of God, of course, is every human being. So every human being, to some extent, in, in freedom to be free for service for others would reflect God-like character, right? So what I'm, what I'm aiming at is if we allow the kind of society that we see on the horizon um, like kind of surveillance control society, um, you know, where your freedoms are impeded, where you're only supposed to do what the government allows you to do, and these kind of things. You don't. You not only have an ungodly society, but because you have an ungodly society, you have an inhumane society. Absolutely right. And everybody should understand that this is not just a Christian fight. This yeah, is the two fight. are connected. The two are absolutely connected. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, in preparation for this, I was thinking about the charter, how it has, you know, the reference to God at the, at, mm. uh, in the in the preface, in the prelude, yeah. and then in Article Two, it, it lists all these freedoms. Well, it, it's a way of saying what you're saying: the character of God and who we are as human beings. Those two are linked, and if you're if you're undoing the one, you're undoing the other. Well, of course, we've been undoing the preface to the charter for many years, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and we're now dealing with Article Two, basically, so, as a logical outcome. So, are you guys saying that? If we do not have God in the picture as a supreme value, that um, we have no metaphysical structure for freedom at the end of the day. Exactly. So yes. it, it would be kind of on the same level of saying that um, we want to maintain the concept of the dignity of the individual, uniquely each. But we don't have a metaphysical foundation when we cut God out of the picture again, because you don't have an objective standard for the unique and um, ineradicable dignity of the individual same kind of idea yeah i would say so i mean um i would say that given historically what we see in western cultures the idea of human dignity which comes from precisely this image of god idea has has sustained itself for quite a while but it's very reasonable to suppose so i mean in some ways you can think that you could have that without having the god presupposition but it's it's obviously what we're seeing, what's very reasonable to think is that without the constant refueling of that notion mm-hmm. from the church, from Christianity, from a living reality, it's going to disappear. And I think we see its disappearance. Mm-hmm. I would also say <clears throat> that you're, you're absolutely right. Without a metaphysical uh, framework of belief in God or God's uh, example, you would cut freedom off and it'll be a balloon that flies, just like love. Without uh, the understanding and metaphysical, metaphysical framework of who God is, love becomes anything you want it to be. And what we find out then is God is the freest being of all, but he has limited that freedom in so many ways by making covenants with us and, um, and choosing voluntarily to limit his freedom for the sake of others. Uh, these covenants that he that he uh, made with humans, uh, were, they all impose limitations upon uh, God Himself and the people, and that is amazing. Uh, the ultimate limitation, of course, is um, 
when he came as a human being and uh, wa- uh, chose to die, give up his life. Uh, so without the understanding that freedom exists only within limits, we are, we are lost. We, we will never <laughs> figure out what freedom is. And, and people don't really understand that, that freedom exists within limits. And those limits are for life and for goodness. <clears throat> Not ma- wearing masks may be a limitation of freedom, but there is no ultimate good that it accomplishes. And so it's a cul-de-sac. It's, it's, it's a dead end. But laying down, uh, giving up the freedom of your life to live, to live a normal life for the sake of another, that is true freedom. So, and the limitations that God puts on our freedom can be defined by um, his teleological designs for his creation. That is to say that he limits us in those areas so that his designs for the creation can be fulfilled. And he limits us insofar as it would contradict his character. Those two things seem to me to be the hedges, the, if I could say it that way, the, the broadest hedges. And then within the historical frame, of course, we're going to have a lot of nuancing going on. But it would seem that God is trying to uh, drive history in a particular direction and that he puts fences up in order that his purposes in history might be fulfilled. He's going to create the sort of people that are able to live in the sort of way that is going to be a blessing to the nations, etc. So... <clears throat> Exactly. Doug Farrell, feel free to jump in any time here. Uh, Doug is on Zoom. It's harder for him to get a word in, seeing we're sitting here. But jump in or put up your hand. I'm watching you. Well, while he's uh, preparing his question, you know, uh, there's an interesting analogy that somebody has used where if you, um, if you were building a play- playground, uh, let's say in a city block, and you just wanted the kids to be completely free in that playground and just have the greatest amount of fun that they possibly could, uh, what would you do? Uh, you would you know, put all these different toys in there, slides and merry-go-rounds and, and all of this stuff. You'd make sure the, <coughs> the ground was you know, uh, soft and so on and so forth. But the final thing you're going to have to put up to make sure that the, that the children could really enjoy themselves is a fence. Because until that final thing is in there, <clears throat> you're, going to have, you're going to have problems because they could run out into the street and hurt themselves. And if you don't have that, you're going to need to hire a whole bunch of guards and, and it'll destroy the whole fun. So freedom within limits is, the, uh, is I think, the way you experience total freedom and, uh, or, mo- or the best freedom. And uh, the limits are for the good of God and neighbor. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm more interested in Doug. I can't see him, um, but I'm more interested in. Uh, maybe this is maybe I'm just being stubborn, but so the, the freedom within limits that seems clear from the scriptures. So that that's freedom for freedom for within God's <coughs> purposes, freedom for the neighbor. But what I'm seeing is that this this limit is perverted. Like this, the, the like the limits within the Christian community says. Well, there's two things. The Christian community says um, you need to limit your freedom. So wear the mask, uh, you know, get vaccinated uh, for all of our safety's sake, for your neighbor's sake, in order to keep the church open, whatever the reason may be. And the uh, the civic um, secular version is they pick up on this on this very same statement. They mean by love of um, you know get vaccinated for the love of the common good. But what is the common good? 
you know, if the common good becomes uh, fight COVID, fight the disease, kill the disease, zero COVID, no matter what it takes. Now we've now entered into utilitarian ethics that says the common good is more important than your personal freedom. And I don't think it is in some ways, right? I mean, the personal freedom and dignity of human being needs to be weighed and balanced against the common good. We cannot, um, like, what's the word? You cannot say, like, make this blanket statement that the common good has to roll over and limit your freedom. Actually, we need to turn to, to yeah. Douglas for this, I think, because he's made some very insightful comments on precisely this issue in an article that he's written. And I'd love to hear Douglas comment on on how, how the common good relates to our uh, to individual uh, freedoms and so on. Well, it's a very large question. Um, <laughs> the I think I think we need to start with um, the the nature of God, if we want to understand this Christianly. And one of the one of the most fundamental things that we need to be aware of as regards God. It's a, it's to put it in a in a phrase that that Saint Irenaeus uses over and over again. God stands in need of nothing. Uh, what God does for his creatures is done not out of any need in God, mm-hmm. but out of pure generosity. So God establishes an economy of free gift and the reception of the gift at the basis of creation itself. Now, the, the, the giving of God in creating the world and in creating human beings involves the giving of forms and natures. So, the, Freedom, freedom is indeed a freedom uh, to lay hold of and participate in that economy of the free gift, freely received. That takes place um, in in the in the in the under the form of the new covenant in 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 this central act of Eucharistic. Um, worship in which the church is thankful before God and is given the means by God uh, to be properly thankful so that giving uh, is accompanied by receiving and giving in return and there's a there's a proper um, uh, and healthy sort of in in, in interest bearing, um, uh, economy here, and when we when we think in in those terms, we we of course are thinking both about the specific human being who is participating, and about the corporate body of the church as a as a kind of um, Irenaeus speaks of us as being receptacles of the divine giving, and so being homo gratus, the, the thankful uh, man, mm. and, and the thankful humanity. And, and this is a, both an individual and a corporate uh, affair. 
so so we don't we don't set the individual over against the 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 common good man is a social animal he's a is a political animal um and the, the the individual good is bound up with the common good what we're struggling with at the moment in our society is that we have had uh, declared to us a certain vision of the common good under these difficult circumstances and we've been told that that must trump um, uh, individual goods. And so we've had the guarantees of individual freedom, which is, again, never purely individual. It, it, it's for families. It's for communities as well as individuals. It's freedom of association. It's, it's freedom of speech. It's freedom to commune and communicate and to worship. We've had those freedoms pulled out from under us by an appeal to a certain vision of the common good, which frankly has been perverted and skewed and, and presented by means of half-truths and untruths. Um, and, and that has, has been used to create a climate of fear, which is the opposite of freedom. Uh, in the writer to the Hebrews says that that um, that our <clears throat> the Son of God became a human being in order to uh, destroy death and the and the fear of death yes. and the slavery that people um, suffer when they act out of fear of death instead of out of gratitude to God and fear of God. And, and, and this, it seems to me, is, is what's happening in our society as a whole and happening very sadly and very um, uh, significantly, even in the churches. Uh, so I, I could say more about that in terms of how it's playing out on the ground. I, I was uh, just to Ottawa yesterday to observe what's going on there, and we can, we can get into some of that later. But I, I, I think the... the the theological uh, frame of reference here ought to be that the whole creation is an economy of free giving and free receiving, and that the individual and the and the race as a whole, and particularly the church, as being at the heart of a thankful Eucharistic, um, gladly um, uh, responding to God kind of community. Um, this this tells us that it's the church in particular which ought not to be subject to fear, but to be free of fear, and therefore able to give freely, rather than to rather than to uh, act out of out of uh, uh, a concern for oneself and one's own safety. That's wonderful. <clears throat> um, it reminds me in the Genesis text that there is an emphasis that each particular entity within the creation is made distinct from the other entities in creation. And then we have this emphasis that it is each according to its kind. And when you talk about freedom being linked to the nature of the created object, um, that reminds me of that text. And it's important to underscore that um, our freedoms as distinct creatures under the creation are not identical, <laughs> I am free to do certain things um, 
and I'm free. I'm not free to do other certain things. For example, I'm not free to um, tackle a buffalo on the plains because I don't. I am not a lion, and I could never do it. I'm not. I'm actually not free to do that. In the same way, the lion is. And there's a certain beauty in the economy that God has created um, in the giving and receiving of our various kinds of freedom uh, that God has given us. Um, Leon Cass is one of my favorite Jewish thinkers. He wrote a book called The Beginning of Wisdom, and recently he came out with a book on the concept of freedom. It's his kind of take on the whole Exodus story. It's wonderful. He kind of channels Levi Strauss as he thinks about Genesis 1 and um, locates the peculiar type of freedom as distinct from the other freedoms in Genesis 1. So he says, you know, you have... Um, the first three days of creation, and they're the construction of the basic spheres of creation. And um, the concept of freedom isn't so much there. They're freedom to be, but they're, um, they're inert. But then once you get to day three, and you have the creation of the luminaries, which of course fills the light, then you have the freedom of movement. But it's a limited type of freedom, right? What? Day four. Day four, sorry, yes, day four. Um, uh, it's a limited type of freedom because they are on their, what do you call those things? Their rotations or on their axes or whatever it's called. And then when you get to day five, you have the creation of the fish and the fowl. And they have freedom, but only within their certain domain. But it's a greater degree of freedom in terms of the freedom of movement than the freedoms of the fourth day. But then when you get to um, the sixth day with the creation of humans, you're left with a question, what kind of freedom exactly do we have here? And I think Cass suggests that this is part of what's going to be explicated in Genesis chapter 2, the second creation account. It's a moral freedom. There's a, a huge risk, and he talks about it in terms of the risk that God actually plants into his creation in order to create a creature who's able to freely love him back. And so there's a moral risk that God takes in creating humans by saying, will you choose to receive wisdom from me? about how to live in a flourishing way? Or will you choose on your own what is wise? I thought you were a Calvinist. I'm a Calvinist. Does that not sound Calvinistic? <laughs> sorry, sorry, I'm just joking. Uh, uh, can I, I'd just like to, to comment on something that Douglas said earlier um, about uh, how freedoms are being taken away from us. I mean, you're, you're, you're picturing, uh, Ed, this... this this gradation of freedom, mm-hmm. right? There, there's there's movement uh, in, on day f- on day four, increasingly in day five, and then on the, we see in day six a moral freedom. Um, and I couldn't help but think of um, the, the the freedom of movement uh, that is being mm. removed. I mean, I think there's there's a reason why people are chanting in the streets wherever you go, whether it's in Europe or or in Australia or or, or here in Canada. <laughs> The one chant that you hear constantly is is for freedom yes. and has everything to do with people being constrained, being people being being uh, it being made impossible for people to move around. Um, I mean, every citizen says the, says the charter has a right to enter, remain in, and leave Canada. Well, clearly, not every citizen has that right today. Right. Uh, we cannot make use of that freedom, and that's that's a right. I mean, of course, it's it's part and parcel, part and parcel of a much larger package. Every single element of which is is being under attack. Um, but it's it's a it's a right that 
that can only be taken away, and these other freedoms as well, they can only be removed under very, very cons- uh, 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 urgent circumstances. Um, if, if the very life of the country, the ability to live together is, is uh, at stake, then we can temporarily, for a short mm-hmm. period of time, perhaps um, bracket these. Um, now, I may have some comments about that with regard to the freedom of conscience and religion, but be that as it may, um, there, there, are, there are constraints to, to, to the ability to remove or to, to upend these kinds of freedoms. Um, I read uh, this past week in uh, Robert Kennedy's book on Anthony Fauci uh, the, the comment that he considers what happened in, in uh, 2020 a coup d'etat on democracy, mm-hmm. uh, a, a removal of democracy. And um, I think that's exactly right. For about 18 months or so, the freedom of religion was simply removed uh, from British Columbia. There was no freedom of religion. Where were the churches? Well, in the business of complying. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> freedom was gone. And it's, it's not just a matter of, well, let's cooperate with, with the government so that we can keep our churches open at least. No, it's a, I think it is a matter of, are we able to, to be the moral kind of creatures um, that God has made us to be? Sometimes non-Christians, when they're chanting freedom, understand that intuitively better than we Christians, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Yes, I, I think that's, that's really vital for us to, to reckon with at the moment. To hear the cries of freedom or liberty in, in uh, Ottawa in both languages and from all sorts of people, um, many of them religious, many of them practicing Christians, but many, many others also is is a very moving thing, particularly if one is hearing it in in contrast to other Christians who are frightened to death and who are quite willing to be compliant even to the point of ceasing to meet to give thanks to God Almighty. Um, God, gracious in giving us existence, even more gracious in rescuing us from the fall and the consequences of Genesis 3 as they have worked out in history and in our own lives. We, We, out of a carefully cultivated fear and a persistently cultivated fear have even given up the act of meeting together to thank God or as is the case now in many places we meet under very restrictive conditions even to the point where these people can thank God with you but those people cannot. And a a Christian community that does not see giving thanks to God corporately, publicly, communally, in a unified fashion, 
as its first duty does simply not understand either the nature of creation as gift or the nature of redemption as a still deeper and richer gift. And when you see society at large reckoning with this contraction of political and and legal and social freedoms and saying, wait a minute, enough is enough. Mm -hmm. And you see Christians rather still cowering and unwilling to do that and covering up their cowardice and their lack of grasp on the reality of a God-given creation and a uh, God-given economy of giving and receiving by saying, oh, well, but God told us to obey the authorities. Mm -hmm. You see, see, I think, um, uh, well, as I say, it's a a cover-up of our living in fear rather than in freedom and a justification of it by saying we're always to obey the authorities. But our first act of obedience is always to give thanks. Mm -hmm. In the liturgy, uh, traditionally, you know, that's that's the word. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Mm. Lift up your hearts to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. And the people respond by saying it is right and just. Well, for two years, we've been told it's wrong and unjust, and we mayn't do it. I, I want to come back on this a little bit, because yeah. I'm, I'm a pastor in a church, so I have some thoughts about this, but Jens wants to get a word I in I just there. have a quick question, Douglas. I would like to have your mind on this. Um, you use Christians uh, in this collective sense. I'm wondering if there's a stratification um, across the board of human beings' response to the pandemic. It seems to me... And I may be wrong. I'd like to hear what you think about this. Um, seems to me that those, like the the more educated um, academics, um, you know, people who are in jobs that are somehow beholden to the government, um, people that are in certain types of social strata, they seem to be more liable to do exactly what you're saying. It seems to be more like the, um, you know, the truckers, construction workers, um, other people that are not immediately careerists or, you know, think they're educated like academics and so on, who see this more clearly for whatever reason. Like, is that something, Is do you think I'm right? And is that something that you see reflected within the church as well? Yes, I, I do think so. Um, many, of, many of the churches are, are heavily populated either by... Um, by an aging um, community or uh, members of the community. Well, we're all aging, aren't we? But the community is aging. <laughs> and and therefore, um, uh, more inclined to try to cling to, um, to benefits already earned and to avoid uh, trouble than a younger population would be. But where where there is a younger population, it is often, as you say, um, uh, uh, linked to the to the the means of um, of making money, 
uh, or to uh, the civil service or something that makes it attractive to just work from home and 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 therefore uh, to accept that kind of, of lockdown mentality. Whereas ordinary working people uh, who by nature of their job get out and about with other people uh, and, you know, they, they are more inclined to see through this and less inclined to accept um, what is a, a, a much greater burden that, that is being placed on them without uh, justification or justice. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's any accident that it's, that it's, that it's truckers mm-hmm. who, who have um, uh, caused the nation, and not just our nation, but nations around the world, uh, to 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 rethink this, and I, I, I can tell you from from being amongst them yesterday. Um, I mean, amongst the people who have gathered round the truckers, uh, there's a there's a spirit of liberation there that is is really very remarkable, um, and uh, I, I was there when the when the war memorial. Uh, had its fence removed, which oh. some of the TV stations were reporting yesterday, you know, as if it were almost an act of violence, uh, um, putting the war memorial somehow at risk. Uh, I saw it happen. Yeah. And yeah. it was done, as most of you will know mm-hmm. by now, uh, by veterans yeah. who, who, uh, did this with enormous respect. They 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 gathered in front of it. They addressed the rest of us. They said, "We have not been allowed to 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 honor uh, fallen comrades here in the cemetery and so forth, mm. and and this is wrong, and we are going to remove this fence and sweep the steps of the monument, yes. which they did." Yeah. And uh, and allow people access to this monument. So stand back. You're not doing it. We are doing it. It was all extremely orderly. People were singing "O Canada." Uh, uh, they were chanting, "Lest we forget." Yeah. In defense of liberties, and um, and when the police came by, uh, the, the 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 they of course didn't know what to do. Uh, because it was all <laughs> and so morally um, uh, profound yeah. in yeah. this business. We mustn't forget what these people fought for. They fought for our freedom. So, Douglas, I'm wondering, uh, I, both Ivan and Hans want to get in, but I want to make a comment first here. One of the things that I saw that brought me to tears in Ottawa is video of um, these truckers and other people, I think, I think they had their spirits quite high, but they were dancing. And I have often thought that one of the signal features of our hope in the resurrection is the ability for us to dance. Now, I'm in the, as Hans was saying earlier, in the Calvinist tradition, so somehow my body hasn't come that far yet. I'll dance by myself, but I find it very hard to dance in front of other people. I haven't reached that degree of freedom with my body yet, even though in the new heavens and new earth, I'm going to be a very good dancer. But isn't it interesting that one of the things that you see on the ground in Ottawa is people dancing? And I saw um, them create a circle 
and people, individuals, right? And this is not without significance. Individuals would go in the circle and the others would delight in the freedom of the movement of their body. I think it's a profound symbol of um, the feeling of liberation and also the togetherness that we experience when we can ex- when we can exhibit that kind of freedom in the eye of the other. Something profound goes on. What are good hands of then, Ivan? Okay. Um, Douglas's story about the War Memorial um, reminds me that the, the question of freedom is closely linked to the question of civil uh, disobedience. And... Um, Maybe civil disobedience is is a separate question that we will address uh, at some future point together. Um, but I just want to pause here for for one second because um, over the last couple of weeks, uh, truckers have often been accused of of anarchy and of of, of violence and uh, well, of who knows what kind of heinous sins such as sedition and and and, and so on. Um, it's interesting to me that. As people are, uh, for uh, for almost in almost the entire way, peacefully demonstrating, mm-hmm. and uh, the story that Douglas just told us underlines that peacefulness mm-hmm. of, of the demonstrations. Um, as they're peacefully demonstrating, um, and indeed engaging uh, on occasion in acts of civil disobedience, um, t- to my mind, the question of proportionality comes comes to the fore. Um, to accuse um, people who act who act in these ways uh, or engage in these acts of, of civil disobedience, to accuse them of, of violence and of anarchy, um, for one at least overlooks um, the gross violence um, and and uh, the gross violation of the law by our governments mm. for two years straight, where the charter has been systematically dismantled, undermined and where we're getting a tyranny being imposed upon us um, without any regard uh, for the freedom of the people and at the slightest, the slightest transgression of, of, of particular laws, uh, people are being accused of violence and, and of anarchy. Um, and to my mind, at the very least, that overlooks uh, and, 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 and ignores any, any kind of proportionality. One reason why I would not uh, dare say a negative word about the truckers that are currently um, demonstrating in, in Canada, throughout Canada, uh, one reason is simply um, I, I would be busy all day critiquing the government first before I would mm. do anything else. Mm. I heard today that in France, and I have not verified this, fines have been instituted uh, for crying out freedom or holding a sign um, calling for freedom. That that tells you about as much as you need to know. Yes, uh, in, in about the 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 governments um, that are that are orchestrating this, this um, pandemic of fear to deprive people of freedoms. Yeah. And I, for one, am extremely grateful for the courage of the truckers and not yes. only the truckers. There are people there, Protestants, Catholics, all sorts of people praying um, uh, and, and uh, singing and dancing in some cases, although many, of course, are, are still burdened by all that has happened, yes. but are so delighted to be in human company again, mm-hmm. as Ed was just saying. Mm-hmm. 
and I, I think it would be enormously ungrateful of us it, to simply tut-tut and say, oh, well, you know, we can't have public demonstrations of that sort. We certainly can. We need them. We need them desperately. Well, there seems to be some great shenanigans going on in terms of trying to attribute guilt to the whole for a couple of bad actors whom we haven't identified, don't know where they're coming from, don't know if they're part of the truckers group at all. And uh, there's a concerted propaganda campaign to create a narrative around what's happening in Ottawa that seems to me, from everything I see, not on legacy media, uh, to be untrue. I, th- I think the narrative is failing, and it's failing mm. desperately, mm-hmm. I think, throughout the country, because we have a 53% approval rate right now of, of what the truckers are doing. Mm. So clearly, the, the, the narrative is, is finally beginning to, to collapse. Well, and it's inspiring nations all over the world, which yeah. is very, very encouraging to see. Ivan? Yeah, so I, I want to get back to Hans's main, not Hans, sorry, Jens's yeah, we, we get that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we, we have established that freedom is not an end, but a means to an end. And um, so as I've been thinking about how in the church especially, the, um, uh, we've been so easily able to give up these freedoms, as we would call them, for the sake of the other and so on and so forth, you realize that um, if it is true that freedom... Uh, is the means to an end, whoever can control the end or the the vision of the end will dictate how you use your freedom. And so in the church, the end, of course, is the worship that goes on in heaven. That is when we meet uh, together as the church to worship. We are not doing that independently. We are mimicking the worship that is going on in heaven at that point, as we see in Revelation 4 and 5. And that is our warrant for meeting. That is the vision. And it is in, that's our goal to which we exercise our freedom. But I think what has happened is the government has come and given us a, another vision of the end, whether mm. it is zero COVID or whether it is love, their version of love your neighbor or, or uh, whatever. And we have bought that. We have jettisoned the vision of Revelation 4 and 5 that we should be mimicking when we come to worship him, which is surrounding uh, each other with, uh, with open face, beholding the glory of God. As Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 3, it is uh, honestly and around the throne, worshiping him as opposed to now what we are being told, that this is the end, and so your freedom should be directed and exercised in this way. So be careful who is setting the end vision for you because they will, uh, they will control your freedom. So <clears throat> that was uh, one point. The other point, I just, it's just a minor one. You were talking about the creation account and how we have this movement um, that begins in day three with the creation of the vegetation. And then you realize that it's going uh, into higher and higher levels of freedom where then the, the um, luminaries, they are, they are free only within their orbital uh, spheres, and then the fish are limited to the sea and the birds to their, to their instincts and the animals. But then comes humans, and they are the freest of all. Right? They can live anywhere. They can travel anywhere. They can eat anything. They have the greatest amount of movement possible. And so we were talking about how 
this cry of freedom is all over the place, I think that is because it's part of the image of God in us. And we know that it is being stifled, that that part of the image of God is being uh, forced out of us or, or limited by, by these government tyrannical <coughs> mandates. And we should never let that happen. And so the cry of freedom, finds or not, bring it on, we're going to yell it even louder. Yeah, I, I uh, want to take up that point, um, Ivan, um, and to me, Titus, to something else. Um, I just want to ask Douglas real quickly, is it true that the veterans, when they cleared, after they cleared the fence around the war memorial, uh, said the Lord's Prayer? I, I have been told that. Um, I, I did not personally witness that aspect of it. Okay. Um, uh, the singing of the anthem, the, the chanting of Lest We Forget, I witnessed. Um, but I have heard on fairly good authority that that, that, that was done amongst them when they were on the other side of the monument from where we were, and we could not see or hear what they were doing. Right. But I cannot vouch for it personally. Right. The reason I'm asking is because we've seen this uh, at other places too, where truckers have, uh, you know, closed off a border, uh, you know, with a holding arms, uh, forming a human barrier. Also, you know, first speaking the Lord's Prayer and then singing "Stand by Me" or a beautiful confluence of the secular and the religious. Um, but I'm thinking I want to take up with this in mind uh, the, the point that Ivan made: Who dictates the eschatological vision? And this, again, is the big picture thinking that the church is sadly lacking as we're trying to comply, try to keep our worship services open. Because the big picture clearly is, um, and I don't think this is a conspiracy theory at all, um, because it's out there as a theory in the reality, is that a certain group of people uh, at least are trying, I'm talking about the World Economic Forum, you know, Silicon Tech Valley, technical corporations, finance world, World Bank, Klaus Schwab and his minions, as I like to put it, there is a vision that is very dehumanizing, a vision that goes against freedom, a vision that goes against the Imago Dei, a vision that basically <coughs> wants the citizens to be technologically surveyed, uh, China style. China's already doing much of this in many ways. Uh, and that, if the church doesn't see that that is the end vision, uh, and we can feel it, like even if you don't believe this is like, you know, Klaus Schwab is sitting there like a James Bond villain and pulling the levers. But we can feel that that's the blanket that's coming down. I think the only real way to fight against it, and here's where the churches are crippling themselves, is indeed what the truckers are doing and what others are doing is to engage the power of religion for it. Like I think the one impulse that can fight this is if you connect freedom to the religious impulse that fuels freedom that we've been talking about. And I think that that's a power that certainly, if they understand it at all, uh, those people that want to erase freedom should be really afraid of, because I think that's really, really um, powerful. So it is all the more tragic, in my view, that the church is not getting the big picture, and that therefore is, is stifling that very power that we could um, unleash in the churches in order peacefully, of course, to reprise you know, the, the whole e economy, Douglas said, you're talking about which creation stands in of gift and gift receiving, um, which really animates a wholesome, healthy society. 
Yes, I, if if I may come back in there, um, it 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 seems to me no accident that religious freedom is the freedom that has suffered the most Absolutely. in this. Uh, there there are many other very serious infringements on freedom, no question, and they have affected more people, no question, but the foundation of the kind of liberty that that our constitution recognizes is grounded uh, that, that that is that that the foundation of those freedoms is as our as our charter says in its preamble uh, the supremacy of god and the rule of law if you unlink those you do not have any any certainty about the justice um, and the order that law is meant to give if you unlink those. Where are they linked? They are linked in the houses of worship. They are linked in honoring and thanking God. So, what happened first in in all of this? The churches were told to shut down, and and many of them. I, I'm sorry to say, but I, I I do think that God is revealing the thoughts out of many hearts. Um, many of them actually shut themselves down before they were told to. Some of them did that thinking that they would be for their obedience, rewarded with being able to open up again uh, amongst the very first. Instead, what happened? They're, in many cases, still being shut down when everything else is opened. You see, if you de-link the supremacy of God and the rule of law, you can turn law in whatever direction you like. Mm -hmm. And that's what's gone on here. It is not an accident. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Doug, I, I would add to that, and this I, I this I came to a long time ago. The reason that they have been able to do that because I think that clause is stated badly: the supremacy of God and the rule of law, because that puts the rule of law on the same level as God, as a coordinate, as two coordinates. And what I happens, don't think it does myself. Yeah. I don't think it does. I agree that it is so cryptically stated as to leave one in a great deal of doubt about just what should be meant. And, of course, there was objection to it yes. at the time. Yeah. Uh, that is, it was nowhere near as fulsome as what you know what's behind the Bill of Rights, but even then it was objected to by, by, by uh, Trudeau Sr. Um, and... But I don't think it does. There's there is a um, there's think... an order there. You, 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 it's not the rule of law and the supremacy of God. It's the supremacy of God and the rule of law. Mm. But fleshing out the way those are linked that is a that is a, a, a mm. task that we um, who have um, uh, the training and the and the. Uh, the um, responsibility to do need to do a better job of. I, I agree with that. Well, the way I would have worded it if I was um, 
given the master role of writing that, would have been the supremacy of God through the rule of law. And that would have eliminated, in my view, a massive amount of uh, fighting that has gone on between these two. Because as it is now, the rule of law becomes uh, whoever is in charge that makes the law. And so the supremacy of God fades, and the rule of law, whichever governing body is there, they, by fiat, uh, create the laws, and what happens in that situation is the supremacy of God fades, and then we are, we are under merely the rule of law. Well, uh, again, I, I would put it the other way around. I, I think we let go of... We, we, we let go of confession of the supremacy of God. We created a so-called secular society, which means in, in practice a, a God-free space for our politics. And then we started changing the laws in ways that deny natural law and divine law. We changed positive law extensively um, in, in ways that deny the, the, um, the God-given order to creation that we were talking about earlier. And, and that becomes tyrannical because there's nothing that limits the state if you make the, the, the whole realm of the state and of society, public society, a God-free realm. There's nothing that limits it. The only thing that stands in the way is is um, the family once you remove religion. It's, it's the family and individual rights. Well, death blows have been dealt to the family. Certainly. And now individual rights are getting their death blows. Right. Certainly yeah. theologically, um, those two elements of the preamble belong together, right? God and, and law. In fact, uh, theologically, they're identical. Um, God is law. And, and, and the re- what the rest of, of, the, of the charter does is to articulate what that means for us in, 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 in giving shape to the economy um, is, is how, how it is that human laws, how it is that human life together, how it is that, that the freedoms that we enjoy participate in divine law, that is to say, in the life of God himself. Um, so the laws that we have have validity, as, as St. Thomas Aquinas would point out, have validity uh, only to the extent uh, that they participate in divine law, that is to say, eternal law, God himself. Um, now, of course, the Charter doesn't say all of that, um, but but by having the two side by side in the preamble, um, at least it is possible cogently to make a theological case uh, for why we should keep those two uh, close close together. So I think it's almost time to wrap it up. I do want to come back on the one thing with the churches. So I have been a pastor through this entire pandemic, and there's two points to be made about the difficulties that pastors are facing in galvanizing their churches in the way that we're talking about here. One, of course, is that churches are divided. And uh, were I to um, come out and say, you know, we need to um, not obey the government and not wear masks, I would sincerely uh, alienate 
a very large portion of the body. Um, I, I believe, this is my own belief, that a lot of the sheep have been misled by continually listening to the mainline media. There is something fascinating going on in the mainline media. It seems to betray to me what is transparently true, um, as could be discovered from other sources. And But um, they're listening to it all the time. So I have to weigh my priorities, in a sense, in terms of um, the unity of the body of Christ and a desire to uh, fight back against what I am considering draconian mandates and lockdowns. So part of the challenge we faced from the beginning is how do you bring people along? That's been unbelievably difficult. I've tried to have some conversations with people, and it quickly goes very, very south. And our need and our desire for togetherness, sometimes I'm finding is trumping our desire to seek the truth. And I think a lot of people are struggling with that, not only at the at the ecclesial level, but also at the at the level of the domestic church, if you will, at the level of the family. That's hard. So that's one point. And the second point I wanted to make is about technology. It has seriously muddied the waters because we believe now, and I fought against this at the beginning. I wrote some blogs about this, but <clears throat> we believe that we can do church digitally. I think that. Um, you know, we've been put in a conundrum uh, by our medical intelligence sometimes. We have now decisions to make that prior to modern medicine we didn't have to make that put us into an ethical dilemma. I think so, the same is true with technology in the church. How do we use technology? Is it a gift overall or is it a curse? Um, now we have an excuse not to come to church, which is to say to embody the reality of being the church by being the embodied people of God together. So, and worshiping God as a foretaste of uh, the kingdom to come in its fullness in all of our diversity. But that's going to be a very embodied reality. After all, um, Christ came in the flesh and then he rose in the flesh and he's, just, he's gathering together a group of people in the flesh. So those are the two comments I just had in terms of the challenges for the church's technology on the one hand and the incredible volatility of this topic on the other. But, and so isn't the problem then, uh, the reason it goes quickly south, these discussions and so on, because there's just a thorough lack of, um, of education, of information on, the, on these big picture items. Like, so for instance, technology. If, you, if, if, if we had been saturated with the knowledge that technology nowadays, computing technology, is, is, is invented, disseminated, and in these apps um, you know, applied and used... Uh, on the basic premise that life is nothing but digital patterns. Life is basically, for the Silicon Valley crowd, uh, something you can digitize, something that is a functionalist uh, reality that we can you know, represent just perfectly on the digital platform. Um, that's why there, there is so little resistance to online digital churches stuff, because people actually think that the pixel representation is just as good as, as pretty much meeting a person. In fact, it gets rid of all your obstacles, you know, of the breathing, smelling, contradicting, body position using person. It, it reminds me of the French portrait of a cigar. And um, it's a picture and it says, this is not a cigar. Mm -hmm. And you have to think about it. But of course, a picture of a cigar is not a cigar. Same too, when we are watching a screen, it is simulated reality. 
You aren't actually with other people in a sense. Now, Douglas is with us, and I'm grateful for, you know, so you get into these tensions. So there's certain gifts, and there's something wonderful about it, but how much better would it be were he in the flesh so that after this is all done, we can enjoy a glass of wine together? Able to travel Mm -hmm. on a plane? Yes. You, You see how pointless is the Christian doctrine of the incarnation if it is true that life can be digitalized. Yes, indeed. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a return to Gnosticism, isn't it, in many ways, in the it, church today? It is. Mm-hmm. We've often shut down our churches with a with comment, um, we're so thankful that we have Zoom. We're so thankful that we have Zoom. And somebody the other day mentioned, made a comment to me, uh, so what what if if this had happened before we had Zoom? Uh, how would we have reacted? Would we have considered the the uh, embodied um, spatial temporal reality of of thinking God together perhaps essential to what is going on in in, in corporate worship? I suspect we might have because that's all we we, we would know. Uh, but now that we also know there's other quote unquote possibilities. Um, we, we, we see them as opportunities rather than as things that potentially at least um, stand in the way. Um, and as to, to the first part of what you're saying, Ed, about um, the difficulty of these conversations going south, um, I can't help but think that the conversation that we're having here about freedom is, is almost more important yet than the one that we had on fear last time. Mm. Um, because it seems to me you're, you're a pastor and you're convinced of the, of the significance of, of um, the, 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 the issues of freedom that it raises for, for churches. But I suspect that many of our pastors and, and, and leaders in the church uh, don't share those sensibilities. And uh, the very first thing, therefore, that needs to happen is not just catechizing congregations but catechizing pastors and priests. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the situation is indeed really quite dire. I, I think it goes back to a question of proportionality as well. So I had a dream very early on in this pandemic of the game Whack-A-Mole. You guys remember that game Whack-A-Mole and the little gopher pops up out of a hole in the ground? And I had a picture and this just recurred to me the other day, reoccurred to me. And I thought, oh, I need a cartoonist. I need a cartoonist. So if anybody who listens to this is a cartoonist, here's an idea for you. So you have this game Whack-A-Mole, and you've got the government and the medical profession. And maybe they have, somehow you indicate that. They're all standing around one hole, okay? So they're little figures. It's a big hole. And out of the hole that they're all standing around, they've all got this giant mallet. And a little, a little gopher comes up. And they're all aiming to hit that little gopher. In the meantime, all of the other holes on the whack-a-mole board have giant gophers coming out of them. And it's like suicidal ideation among young people, anxiety disorders, um, excessive drinking, um, overdoses, uh, economic collapse, um, loss of constitutional rights and freedoms, um, civil liberties, you know. And uh, I think that's where we've lost proportion as well. Absolutely. And I think for many in the church, it's like, no, we're doing a really good job. And if, if the goal is simply to hit the COVID-19 gopher down back in the hole, 
then maybe we're doing a good job. I'm not sure. I think Even that's that definitely up for, up for yeah. grabs. <laughs> but the goal, we have to look at all of these other gophers that are coming up out of the holes. Yeah. And this is where I think we're in the midst of a humanitarian crisis from certain statistics I've heard about a lack of distribution that are causing, causing starvation among the poor in other countries. Jay, Jay Bhattacharya, who's been very vocal, has said, you know, our love for the poor as a church is proving to be, in some ways, nothing more than lip service, the way that we're going about this. But I do think, this sounds very harsh, and I don't mean to be harsh at all, I do think a lot of it is um, we don't know. We are uncertain. We're not sure who to believe. We're not sure who we can trust anymore. It's a real crisis. Well, I'm just going to add this. I'm just not going to let go of this point. <laughs> um, is this this game the way it's played? You know, that's a good. That's a, that's a generous interpretation of why you know politicians, health officials, and others are refusing sure. to widen their glance, right? To widen their perspective. But if somebody puts out a book that you can buy on Amazon that's called COVID-19 and the Great Reset, which says that this crisis, this, this, this game, this single-minded purpose that neglects everything else is brilliant because it gives us the chance to realize our vision. So, in fact, it is so good that um, we should have produced this kind of pandemic in order to have uh, this single-minded focus to have the kind of creative destruction with poor people, middle-class businesses, that we can reset society. Like, that's just too convenient for me. Um, you know, and so I'd be careful, especially when you talk about freedom, because what a lot of doctors have found, I'm speaking about, you know, kind of care lines or the, the frontline doctors in the States and so on, why is it that uh, resistance to the main narrative, right? If they say, look, exactly what you say, look, guys, that's not the... That's not the gopher, the single gopher. Like, there's all these other problems. We actually know how to defang this gopher. Mm-hmm. We, we can't kill it. It can't be killed. But we can live with it, and we can perfectly well tame it, right? So we can live with it. Yeah. Why is it that that solution that's perfectly reasonable and it's out there, proven to be out there, is being resisted with vehemence? Right. Another question. Like even right? the treatment options, you mean, yeah, for example. Yeah, the treatment yes. options. Why... Why? And so some of these doctors, perhaps regrettably, but perhaps wisely, have come around, like Pierre Corey, for instance, to say exactly, this is more than simply ignorance or political grandstanding. There's a concerted effort uh, to destroy freedom, to destroy democracy, to destroy the patient doctor relationship and so on and so forth. And if that I just is want true, to put that out there. You know? that I think is, that's a, if that is true, the sooner we wake up, the better. The better. I think that's a great comment. And um, to, to, to add to, to Jens's point, um, you can pretty much trace this down to the question of who has and who has not been discipled uh, by, Klaus, by Klaus Schwab. Uh, um, those who have been, like Trudeau, uh, like the mayor of, of Ottawa, yes. um, th- th- they're all exactly on board with, with what's exactly going on. on board. And they will refuse, constantly refuse any sort of modification of the mandates because they want the mandates to continue. And let me just tie this in because I forgot to say this like 10 minutes ago. So who is it that accuses the truckers of sedition? Yeah. Mark Carney. In his, who is Mark Carney? Mark Carney is completely on board with this whole WEF agenda. He's right. one of the, not even a puppet, he's one of the linchpins. Um, and Trudeau, of course. But, you know, there's these people that now say, we want law and order. We, you know, there can't be these protests. They're the ones that have been busy undermining law and order for decades. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, so. 
If, if, if I may add this point, um, technology is, is capable of being used for good or capable of being used for evil. Um, it's, not, it's not evil in itself, but it has been used for evil in this situation by breaking up human communities through the promulgation of fear driving them out of personal communion into online communities where the major community, the vast majority of the people have been subjected to constant fear-inducing propaganda. And the church uh, as a, as a community uh, around the incarnate one, a living communion of embodied people in each other's presence is is a threat to that, which is why these communities were prevented from meeting. If you read uh, uh, Schwab, you'll not find in his book any reference to that. You won't find any reference to religion at all. Uh, Religion is not to be part of of this world in which people are joined but also isolated right. by the by the technology i put it to you that if there had been no such technology as we are now using this whole business could not have happened hmm. i'm not i'm not suggesting we go back no, to a pre uh, computerized uh, 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 some sort of very limited technology uh, age i don't think we can do that but I think we have to understand that the fear propaganda could not have arisen if we weren't driven out of our communities and into uh, uh, an ersatz world. Hmm. So, so we have to be very, very careful about this. Get back to basics. Get human beings together as you are in that room so that things go back into perspective. And that is what they don't want. But on the streets of Ottawa, it's palpable. People (laughs) laughing, hugging, dancing, giving thanks, praying together. Yes, It's human. And that's what they don't want. That's sedition to them because it threatens their entire agenda. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Mm -hmm. Very well said. Why don't we have one chance for final thoughts, if you have them, and then we'll close this out. My final thought would simply be um, that freedom cannot be snuffed out um, because we have a God who is free Mm. and he wants us to participate in his life. Uh, So there's in the end, at the end of the day, Mm. there's always a message of hope. God is the God of freedom and it will not be snuffed out. What I would like to add is that freedom cannot be snuffed out, as Hans so uh, put it so well. But it is something that has to be safeguarded and even fought for. And it is in every generation. It is just we are just one step away from allowing, and I use that word very, very deliberately, allowing others to take it away from us, where we voluntarily give up our freedom. 
And that we should never do. We should claim our freedom as given to us by God in the name of God and fight for it, even if it means uh, whatever the cost. That is something, that is a hill that I would be willing to die on. Before Douglas or Jens go, Albert Camus said this in his uh, work, Bread and Freedom, in 1957. Freedom is not a gift received from a state or a leader, but a possession to be won every day by the effort of each and the union of all. Yeah, so my word of hope would be that we remember that, that is something that is given and inherent in our in our nature as those as those image bearers, but it has to be realized. Right? It's not something that's it has to be realized. Um Martin Luther uh, once said that the Christian, in his, in his tract on the Christian of the freedom, uh, the freedom of the Christian, Freiheit eines Christenmenschen, you think of the German title, um, he said that Christians of all people, of all the most free and subject to no one, but the paradox is that he's also of all people, uh, you know, servant of everyone. Mm. But it's only out of that freedom that you can serve. And I think we've neglected the first part. I don't think mm-hmm. Christians are all about service, and they're serious about that. But they don't recognize if you allow the government to dictate to you um, how to worship, you've given already up the first part that makes genuine love and genuine service possible. And you're just moving toward a form of slavery that at some point will bite, bat, bite, bite back because we are free creatures, as Hans said. So. The, the biblical... Uh person in me wants to <coughs> wants to let the theologian know that uh, before Luther said that, that was actually Paul. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I know that, but I mean, you know, I, I, thought, I, thought I'd, I'd, I thought I'd go from a Frenchman to a German theologian, and Luther, of course, is just paraphrasing Paul. That's right. Douglas. And, he, and he says so, you know. Yeah. The, yeah. I, I, I think everyone should reckon with the fact that Fear is not of God. Right. And actions taken out of fear are not godly actions. It is in the presence of the living God, giving thanks to the living God, that we are released from the one who holds the power of death and who wields it through fear. Again, that's that's Hebrews chapter 2. We need to be a fearless people. We shouldn't have to learn it from those who don't even know God or worship God. But if they can teach it to us in some fashion, we should be grateful for that too. Amen. Um, perfect love casts out fear. And perfect fear casts out freedom. And I would want to say to the church that um, we may have come to the point where in obedience to Jesus, we're not free to isolate from each other anymore because we are experiencing, and many are whom I have talked to, a pandemic of disconnection, a pandemic of loneliness, a pandemic of depression and anxiety, And the antidote to that is indeed human relationship. And we need to think about this very, very carefully uh, before we go back down into any kind of lockdowns like that. So 
Thank you all who've uh, tuned in to our podcast, Biblical Frame. We will attempt to meet again probably in another two weeks or so. And feel free to disseminate this as widely as you see fit. And until then, God bless you and keep well. Mm-hmm.